It is my great privilege to talk with you today. Um, but in case it's not obvious, in, in my weakness, I'm not up to the job of sharing God's word. And none of us is up to the job of hearing it. So right now, at the start of this sermon, let's agree that we'll press into God's strength for the speaking and the hearing. In Luke 16, verse 16, Jesus said, Until John the Baptist, the law of Moses and the messages of the prophets were your guides. But now the good news of the kingdom is preached and everyone is eager to get in. The ESV translates that the good news of the kingdom of God is preached and everyone forces his way into it. Are we eager to get into the kingdom of God? Are we forcing our way in? This is why we need God's strength as we hear his word and respond. This is not a passive business. We mustn't dare simply to sit and nod and leave and forget. Let's eagerly receive the words, the nourishment that comes from the Holy Spirit today. Let's forcibly take these words into our hearts, apply them to our lives, and strain to see the coming kingdom of God. Agreed? So in the run-up to Christmas, we take time to focus on the earth-shattering events that lead us to our faith in Jesus Christ, our risen Savior. And maybe it's not felt very Christmassy so far today, but in our first Christmas sermon of 2022, our title is Incarnation, God Made Flesh. Incarnation. This is the process through which God took on human form. And we can say that sentence very easily. This is the process through which God took on human form. And maybe we're left unmoved. God became human. Almighty God, the infinite creator of the universe, became human. And this short sentence tells us an apparently impossible thing which we must believe. Our minds can't quite grasp it, so it washes over us. And my prayer is that by the end of today's sermon, our hearts will be filled with spine-tingling wonder as we start to understand just how extraordinary this was, how impossible but true. The Incarnation. God made flesh. In his first letter to Timothy, um, the Apostle Paul says this. This is 1 Timothy 3.16, another very good 3.16. 1 Timothy 3.16. Without question, this is the great mystery of our faith. Christ was revealed in a human body and vindicated by the Spirit. He was seen by angels and announced to the nations. He was believed in 
throughout the world and taken to heaven in glory. Without question, this is the great mystery of our faith. What's so mysterious about Jesus Christ being revealed in a human body? Well, let's consider an admittedly inadequate metaphor. Uh, You'll need your imagination for this for reasons that will become obvious. Imagine I have in my left hand a matchbox. That's the easy bit. Can you imagine that? Now, imagine I have in my right hand a gorgeous crown. It's solid gold. It's set with diamonds and emeralds, rubies and sapphires. It sparkles and gleams. I can't hold it for long because it's heavy. And I take that crown and I put it in the matchbox. Will it fit? Impossible. But it's in there. Can you see the crown? Of course you can't. It's in the matchbox. What happened to all that majesty, the gems that so beautifully reflected the light? Hidden. They're there, but you can't see them. Unless I open the matchbox a little and a burst of glory shines from that small opening. Let's take this metaphor even further. And for this, we are going to need a much bigger building. Because now, although my left hand still holds a matchbox, in my right hand, I have the entire universe. That's really heavy. It's a thing of awe-inspiring beauty. It contains power. As countless suns detonate planet-destroying nuclear reactions and hurl their heat and light and plasma into the void. It contains truth. It contains love. It contains justice. It is magnificent. And I put it in the matchbox. Will it fit? Impossible. But it's in there. Can you see the universe? No, of course you can't. It's in the matchbox. It's hidden. We can't see its light or feel its heat or behold its beauty unless I open the matchbox a little and an overwhelming burst of glory shines from that small opening. Christ Jesus, the infinite, glorious person of God, hid his glory inside the body of a human man. Isaiah 53. There was nothing beautiful or majestic about his appearance, nothing to attract us to him. He hid his beauty and majesty within the covering of frail, unimpressive human flesh. So me hiding the universe in a matchbox, it's a metaphor. And like all metaphors, it may help, but it's imperfect. What God did was even more impossible. Let's look at one of our main passages today. It's from the Old Testament, and it may be quite familiar. If you have your Bibles, you'll probably want to turn to this. Isaiah 6. 
Isaiah 6, verses 1 to 4. It was in the year King Uzziah died that I saw the Lord. He was sitting on a lofty throne, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Attending him were mighty seraphim, each having six wings. With two wings, they covered their faces. With two, they covered their feet. And with two, they flew. They were calling out to each other, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of heaven's armies. The whole earth is filled with his glory. Their voices shook the temple to its foundations. And the entire building was filled with smoke. Not many are privileged to see the creator of the universe. In fact, in Exodus 33, verse 20, God says to Moses, you may not look directly at my face, for no one may see me and live. Some, like Moses and like Isaiah, are gifted with a glimpse of the glory of God. Isaiah 6, the ESV says this, I saw the Lord, the Lord sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up. The NIV says, I saw the Lord high and exalted, a lofty throne, high and lifted up, exalted. And just the train of his robe, the bit that follows behind him, that alone filled the entire temple. The whole earth is full of his glory, and the earth can't contain that glory. The earth can't contain God. How much yet, how much less, a frail human body. And yet he came. Our other main text is from the New Testament and probably even more familiar. John chapter 1. John 1. In the beginning, the word already existed. The word was with God and the word was God. He existed in the beginning with God. God created everything through him, and nothing was created except through him. The word gave life to everything that was created, and his life brought light to everyone. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness can never extinguish it. God sent a man, John the Baptist, to tell about the light so that everyone might believe because of his testimony. John himself was not the light, he was simply a witness to tell about the light. The one who is the true light, who gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. He came into the very world he created, but the world didn't recognize him. He came to his own people, and even they rejected him. But to all who believed him and accepted him, he gave the right to become children of God. They are reborn, not with a physical birth resulting from human passion or plan, but a birth that comes from God. So the word became human and made his home among us. He was full of unfailing love and faithfulness. And we have seen his glory, the glory of the Father's one and only Son. God, the Word, the true light. God through whom 
everything was created and from whom all life flows, that God came into the world as a human, stood before other humans, and they didn't recognize him. The glory of the universe hidden in a matchbox. The unmatched beauty of the true Savior hidden in a human body. And to all who believed and accepted him, he gave them the right to become reborn children of God. This Jesus, this beautiful Savior, full of permanent, unstopping, unfailing love and faithfulness. God and man, perfectly both. What have we learned so far about this Jesus from Isaiah and from John? He is exalted. The earth itself is full of and displays his glory. He was already there at the beginning. He's eternal. He was with God and he is God. Jesus is a person of the Trinity, another mystery. He is the conduit, the channel for creation. Everything was made through him. He's the giver of life. We're alive only because of him, and we continue to live at his good pleasure. He's the source of light. John speaks of a light that can't be extinguished, a pure, holy, spiritual light, the light of truth, the light of the knowledge of God, the light of God's holiness. He's the great mediator, the one who makes things right between us and God the Father. He is the way through whom which we become God's children. He became human. As the late singer-songwriter Rich Mullins put it, you lived down here where we all scrape. Do you see the great distance between where he was, where Jesus was, in full glory and radiance, the distance between that and this smelly, grubby existence? where life is hard and painful and traumatizing and full of grief. The world that became so messed up because of our father Adam's sin and our sin. Jesus voluntarily submitted to the greatest humiliation that could ever be. A humiliation of vast and impossible proportions to go from being king and God to being one of us. He humbled himself. He humbled himself as no one else has ever been humbled or ever can be humbled. All beauty and glory hidden in a lowly matchbox. To go through the indignity of becoming a baby completely dependent on two human parents whom the God of the universe could snuff out with a thought. To be cared for by them, to be changed and winded and dressed and undressed as if he were a common person. 
This is one of the reasons he's our hero. What other king has given up so much to live among his people, to experience what they experience, to suffer as they suffer, and worse? God made flesh. Impossible. In the words of Walter Smith, who wrote this hymn 150 years ago, Immortal, invisible, God only wise. In light, inaccessible, hid from our eyes. Most blessed, most glorious, the ancient of days, almighty, victorious. Your great name we praise. Unresting, unhasting, and silent as light. Not wanting, nor wasting, Thou rulest in might. Your justice like mountains, high soaring above. Your clouds, which are fountains of goodness and love. To all life you give, to both great and small. In all life you live, the true life of all. We blossom and flourish as leaves on the tree. And wither and perish, but naught changes thee. Great Father of glory, pure Father of light, your angels adore you, all veiling their sight. All praise we would render. Oh, help us to see, tis only the splendor of light hideth thee. And in the Christmas carol, O little town of Bethlehem, we sing this. How silently, how silently, the wondrous gift is given. So God imparts to human hearts the blessings of his heaven. No ear may hear his coming, but in this world of sin, where meek souls will receive him still, the dear Christ enters in. The blessed, glorious, mighty, victorious God, ancient of days, gives us this wondrous gift, this true blessing from heaven, the incarnated Son, the Lord God, Jesus Christ, made flesh. Hebrews 1 verse 3. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. And he upholds the universe by the word of his power. After making purifications for sin, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. What a picture. Becoming flesh, becoming human, that wasn't like an actor putting on a costume. Maybe that's how we visualize it. But it's so much more than that. He changed his position going from heaven to earth. He changed his status, going from king to baby. He changed his relationships. Though he remained one person of the Trinity, he now had human parents. He changed his experience. He went from living in unconstrained power to limiting that power so he could live as we live. He changed his glory. He went from being worshipped in heaven to being rejected and even spat on by his neighbors. What does this mean for us? 
It means that we have so much more reason to worship and adore him, to worship and adore the Father, Spirit, and Son. And more than that, let's read what Paul writes in Colossians 1. Colossians 1, 15 to 22. Christ is the visible image of the invisible God. He existed before anything was created and is supreme over all creation. For through him, God created everything in the heavenly realms and on earth. He made the things we can see and the things we can't see, such as thrones, kingdoms, rulers, and authorities in the unseen world. Everything was created through him and for him. He existed before anything else, and he holds all creation together. Christ is also the head of the church, which is his body. He is the beginning, supreme over all who rise from the dead. So he is first in everything. For God, in all his fullness, was pleased to live in Christ. And through him, God reconciled everything to himself. He made peace with everything in heaven and on earth by means of Christ's blood on the cross. This includes you who were once far away from God. You were his enemies, separated from him by your evil thoughts and actions. Yet now he has reconciled you to himself through the death of Christ in his physical body. As a result, he has brought you into his own presence, and you are holy and blameless as you stand before him without a single fault. We could just think to ourselves, hey, I'm saved. I ticked that box. Job done. And call it a day. But I don't know how a true follower of Christ can do that. Look at this Jesus! We were separated from God. Perhaps some of us still are. Separated by our evil thoughts and actions. We all have them. If you claim you don't, I'd respectfully suggest adding liar to your list of other faults. This is all of us. Our evil thoughts and actions exclude us from God's presence. He can't bear evil. But through the incarnation of Christ, through Jesus putting himself in a position where his blood could be spilled, through all that followed in his life on earth, we get a chance to be reconciled to God, to be brought into the presence of God, us. And notwithstanding our evil thoughts and actions, if we've submitted to God and accepted him, chosen his way, repented of his sins, we stand blameless. Once guilty, but now blameless. Holy and blameless. That guilt you feel, by rights you should feel it, but you don't have to. He's taken it away. He is the image of the invisible God. 
we now see his image, the image of God whom we could not previously see and live. He's the firstborn over all creation. We can step out of the image of our forefather, the fallen Adam, and into the image of the firstborn righteous Christ through whom everything and everyone was created. Are we eager to receive this truth? Are we forcing our way into it? Are we straining with all our strength to walk in the way of Christ? Because that's what we must do. It's the only rational thing to do. God calls us to many walks. Some are students, some makers of homes, some doctors, some drainage workers, some unemployed, some retired. And all of us have the strength, whether much strength or little, that God has given us, not just to go about our daily lives, but to worship and adore him as we do. Colossians 3.23 Work willingly at whatever you do, as though you are working for the Lord rather than for people. If some earthly person you respect came into your home or place of work and watched you writing your essay, washing the dishes, paying your suppliers, fixing a customer's car. If that person, that human hero, came and saw us, wouldn't we neaten up, stand a bit straighter, talk more politely, work that bit harder? How much more then, with Christ as our hero, our brother, our Lord and King, He's always present. Whatever we do, we work as for him. And it's not about achieving success or about salvation through works. None of that matters. What matters is that we have soft hearts inclined towards God, reveling in his beauty, longing to please him, reaching for holiness and purity, forcing our way into his kingdom, his purposes, his way of doing things. So that we give our best, which isn't much compared to what he already has, but our best to this God incarnated, this wonderful Savior who gave so much for us, who gave so much to be one of us. How much did he give? I've been reading the uh, Narnia books lately. I love to read something like that just as we get towards Christmas. And I love this quote from The Magician's Nephew, which if you read them chronologically is the first book. Um, so chronologically it's a prequel to The Lion, the Witch and the Wardrobe. And in it we see the great lion Aslan, who symbolizes Jesus, set Narnia in motion. And right at the start of Narnia, the children in this story, Diggory and Polly, they find their way into Narnia, bringing with them an evil witch who's destined to bring great suffering to the land. After the humans arrive, after sin arrives, and this great conflict is set in motion, Aslan says this to the talking animals. You see, friends, he said, that before the new clean world I gave you is seven hours old, a force of evil has already entered it, waked and brought hither by this son of Adam, 
But do not be cast down, said Aslan, still talking to the beasts. Evil will come of that evil, but it is still a long way off. And I will see to it that the worst falls upon myself. Evil will come of that evil, but it is still a long way off. And I will see to it that the worst falls upon myself. Jesus wasn't simply brought down low from his high position. He wasn't simply humiliated. No, the worst that can be done to a human being happens to him. Extreme suffering and then death. And not just any death. I've been reading Deuteronomy recently and I came upon this part of the Mosaic law. The law, remember, was still in force while Jesus was alive until he fulfilled it on the cross. So the passage I'm about to read is active and binds Jesus. Deuteronomy 21, 22 to 23. If someone has committed a crime worthy of death and is executed and hung on a tree, that body must not remain hanging from the tree overnight. You must bury the body that same day for anyone who is hung is cursed in the sight of God. In this way, you'll prevent the defilement of the land your God is giving you as your special possession. Anyone hung on a tree is cursed of God. Jesus came down low. He was humiliated. He was tortured. And finally, as he hung there on that cross, that horrific tree, the final indignity, the curse of God fell on him. And we know he rose from the dead. He was glorified, and he now sits at the right hand of God the Father, the most honored position there can ever be. But you see how low this God had to go to reach our level, and to go beneath our level, down to Hades, in order to raise us up, to redeem us, and to turn that curse into the most powerful blessing of all. This blessing doesn't make bad people good. It makes dead people live. Praise his name. Jesus lived and died to please his father. We're merely asked to live to please the father. Jesus denied himself his godly, kingly rights. He surrendered the majesty and glory of heaven. We're only asked to deny our evil passions and pursue holiness, not to cling to the trinkets that this world has to offer. Jesus sacrificed himself, his physical body. We're only asked to sacrifice our will, to submit to our our God, who is rightfully our king, and to give him the worship he deserves. And so I'll read 1 Timothy 3.16 one last time. Without question, this is the great mystery of our faith. Christ was revealed in a human body and vindicated by the Spirit. He was seen by angels and announced to the nations. He was believed in throughout the world and taken to heaven in glory. Without question, This is the great mystery of our flesh.
of our faith. God made flesh for us. How much more must we live for him? Jesus, we honor you in this season, Christmas time. There are no words really that we can say that are adequate to thank you. But we worship you. We worship you as the God you are, the baby you became, the man you lived to be, and the person that took our sin away. We honor you, God. Amen.